Good afternoon, everyone. We are going to get started. It is 4 o'clock, and I want to honor our time today and honor our speaker so we can give him as many minutes as possible uh, during tonight's first colloquium of the 23-24 academic year. And so first, I just want to welcome everyone. I want to welcome those that are joining us on Facebook Live. It's great to have them with us virtually. Uh, and for all of you that are in the room today, so colloquium by definition is an academic word. It can be used for the word conference. In this case, it's not a conference, let's say where you're going from different session to different session, but for here at EMU, it is an intellectual space for faculty, staff, and students to hear current research findings, explore ideas and developments through interdisciplinary engagement. I'm Dr. Tynesha Willingham, and I'm the Provost and Vice President for Academic Affairs, and I'm just really excited to introduce our speaker for tonight. So now a little bit about our speaker. So Dr. Timothy Seidel, he's probably like, oh my gosh, you're using my government name. Um, he, a little bit about him and his education. So he received a BS in biochemistry with minors in mathematics and cultural anthropology from Messiah College. He also holds a master's in theological studies from Wesley Theological Seminary and a master's of arts in international peace and conflict resolution from the American University of International Service. He also holds a PhD in international relations from American, Uni American University School of International Service as well. Dr. Seidel is an associate professor of peacebuilding development and global studies. He's also the director of the Center for Interfaith Engagement here at Eastern Mennonite University. He is the co-editor of two publications, Political Economy of Palestine, Critical Interdisciplinary and Decolonial Perspectives, and a forthcoming publication, Resisting Domination in Palestine, Mechanisms of Techniques of Control, Coloniality, and Settler Colonialism. Ooh, I can't talk today, it's after four. Um, he also recently led, co-led an EMU intercultural program to the Middle East, specifically Palestine. Last year, Dr. Seidel was on sabbatical, which is a great opportunity for our faculty to rest, restore, engage in their scholarship, and refine their teaching. And as a result, he spent his time um, doing additional research. And tonight, we will be gifted with a talk from him today titled, Violence, Nonviolence and resistance, Samud and struggle in Palestine. So let's give a royal welcome to Dr. Tim Seidel. Can y'all hear me? Great. The Palestinian village of Nahalin in the West Bethlehem area, along with the villages of Hassan, Batir, Wadi Fukin, and Al Walaja, is increasingly isolated from Bethlehem. As Israeli colonization in the Etzion settlement block grows, and as Israel's separation wall continues to cut deeply into the West Bank, Palestinians here have little access to the rest of the occupied West Bank. 
I lived and worked in Palestine from 2004 to 2007, and in my many visits to Nahalin since 2004, uh, where I returned most recently this summer with an EMU student group, I visited the farm of the Nassar family. Like the other residents of this area, the Nassars and their family farm are hemmed in between the Green Line, which is the uh, internationally recognized 1949 armistice line separating Israel from the West Bank, hemmed in between the Green Line and the Wall. Palestinians from Nahalim find themselves among close to 11,000 Palestinians living in this seam zone between the Wall and the Green Line, which includes roughly 10% of the West Bank. This is part of Area C in the West Bank. So to better understand the situation of Palestinian villagers um, in Nahalin, it's important to see it within the context of the political geography of the West Bank. By the way, the photos here are a mix of photos I've taken, as well as photos that our students have taken. I think this one is uh, by Micaiah. So just some orientation, right? Middle East, so-called Middle East, right? You see Saudi Arabia up there. You can see Iran, Iraq. Um, this is Israeli-occupied territories right there. So if you zoom in, this is what you see. And if you zoom into the West Bank, this is what I'm talking about with Area C. Signed in 1993, the Oslo Accords provided the overarching political framework for relations between Israelis and Palestinians. The agreement was intended as a step towards a final settlement, towards Palestine becoming a state, a two-state solution. But a Palestinian state has not been realized. In 1995, there was another agreement that officially divided the West Bank into three areas, areas A, B, and C. And what this map shows us um, the lighter brown areas are areas A and B, where most of the Palestinian folks live. Area C, uh, the darker brown area, um, is completely controlled, civil affairs, uh, security, military affairs by Israel. Israel controls area C. It's the only contiguous area within the West Bank. And it also includes some of the richest agricultural land, water resources in the West Bank. 62% of the West Bank. Palestinians are prohibited from creating permanent structures in Area C. You can't build a house without permission in Area C. So that leaves about 150,000 Palestinians in Area C forced to reside in informal and non-permanent encampments. And this, you can see, is if you look at Bethlehem here, see this area, this block right here. Now we zoom in, and that's this area right here. And this is what I mean by here's the green line. It's in green. And then this red area is the path of a wall, a literal wall. And this area in between the wall and the green line, this is that seam zone that I referred to. And it's inside the West Bank, but there are Palestinian villages like Nahalin that are not only surrounded by a wall and then the green line, they're surrounded by these blue areas are Israeli settlements. So Nahalin is what we're remembering right now. The physical fragmentation in which Palestinian communities exist in these enclaves, along with Israeli settlement expansion, complete control over the Palestinian economy, makes development for a future state 
really difficult and it presents significant constraints on the livelihoods of Palestinian families, like the Nassar family. And here's Amal and Dahar Nassar, who we met this summer, many of us met this summer. And I've known Dahar for almost 20 years. And yet the story of the Nassar family is not one of resignation. Instead, the Nassars provide an example of steadfastness, of sumud in Arabic, a form of struggle in the midst of settler colonial occupation. And this is what my project is about. Uh, greater attention to the role of marginalized peoples, with particular attention to settler colonialism and indigenous struggle, in the production of concepts and practices of politics and resistance, right? So the role of marginalized people in articulating concepts and practices of politics and resistance. It shines a spotlight on the overlooked and seemingly everyday practices of colonized groups in ways that I argue destabilize some of the binaries we use to talk about resistance. Binaries like violence, nonviolence. Um, by the way, my name is Tim. Uh, I teach here at EMU, um, and I led a, a trip to Palestine and Israel and some parts uh, of the West Bank uh, of, of the Middle East this summer. Um, and I'm going to highlight both some of this research as well as some of our trip um, for you all this morning. So this is what my project has been about. Discussion on resistance and resistance movements often turns on representations of violence and nonviolence. But is there something about that binary that obscures deeper understandings of popular struggle and the social, political, economic conditions from which they emerge? Not that questions about the efficacy or morality of violence or nonviolence are somehow resolved or unimportant, but what if there are instances when that binary hides more than it reveals? I argue this is true in a place like Palestine where the binary or talk about that binary displaces acts of struggle by Palestinians by asking questions about violence and nonviolence that carry with them already made answers. This is what it looks like. Let me see if they're nonviolent. This project attempts to unpack the work of that binary to better understand struggle. And these are the three aims that I identified. Uh, first, examine dominant categories of nonviolence and civil resistance that get mapped onto places like Palestine, right? I call this colonial imposition. The second is to explore alternative discourses of struggle and resistance narrated by Palestinians as decolonial response. Right, so colonial imposition overlaying a geography of struggle from outside and decolonial response, not indebted to that imposition, engaged in struggle based on the real life experiences of people. In particular, this project aims to explore the concept of sumud or steadfastness and how it's lived in Palestine um, and how land and place inform that understanding of steadfastness. And then the transnational linkages of solidarity that are formed across communities engaged in struggle against state violence and against settler colonialism. And then the third aim, the more kind of 
theoretical philosophical one is to think about the implications for uh, research um, in other contexts that destabilizes this rigid distinction between violence and nonviolence. Um, I've been using this term settler colonialism. So what, am I, what do I mean by that? Settler colonialism is a kind of colonialism, right? Did you know there are many ty types of colonialism? It's a kind of colonialism. It's a kind of colonialism characterized by a logic of elimination, a logic of elimination in order to replace, elimination of an indigenous population, uh, elimination of local practices and relationships with the land in order to replace with a settler society. Um, in Palestine, uh, this is seen in the conf confiscation of land, uh, an intricate closure regime where there's checkpoints and um, walls, um, uh, a regime of water consumption and in inequitable health access. Um, and so decoloniality in the context of a settler colonial regime. I've been using that word too. So for, in, the, in that word decoloniality, what I'm trying to get at there is um, a recognition of the enduring presence of indigenous peoples, despite that logic of elimination. We were just talking about this in one of my classes this morning, that one of the problems of thinking about colonialism as a past historical phenomena and not as a structure that persists into the present is that we, we might also then think about indigenous peoples as somehow no longer also, no longer existing in the present. So decoloniality takes as its point of departure the enduring presence of indigenous peoples. And the language and frame of indigeneity is important because it forces us to confront Palestinian dispossession within a framework of settler colonial history that actually is not exceptional, right? America is a settler state. Canada is a settler state. Australia is a settler state. Israel is a settler state. So there's a framework of settler colonial history that identifies this kind of socio-cultural familiarity with other places, which leads to other connections, solidarities. Despite these colonial impositions, Palestinians, like other indigenous communities, live and remain present on their land. And this resistance and struggle takes many shapes. And so for this project, I zoom in on this concept of sumud. And here's a, a picture of Jean Zaru, who's a, a Palestinian woman, a Palestinian Christian woman, who talks about sumud. Um, steadfastness, persistence, enduring, Um, it also, that my project also wrestles with uh, this question, what does it look like to take the political predicament of indigenous peoples, of folks experiencing settler colonial violence as the context, as the starting point for political theory? Um, and I'm following uh, writers like um, uh, Adam Gadachu, who talks about the need uh, to move beyond the critique of Eurocentrism. Critiquing Eurocentrism is really important but moving beyond the critique of Eurocentrism um, in order to generate political theory from and for the non-European world. So that, that really informs this kind of, that's the theoretical thrust here. Uh, so it's less re a recurring critique of Eurocentrism than an effort to shift the terrain of theorizing to better attend to politics in other parts of the world. And so in, in Palestine, this emphasis on the everyday, the mundane, 
that refuses even this violence, nonviolence binary, I argue, or at least is not animated by that binary, right? that, that's not what matters, draws attention to this concept, this practice of sumud as a decolonial response that does not require or even seek authorization or legibility from the European world. And the, the literature on Samud is varied. I highlight one example here with Jean, um, who says um, that uh, Samud, or, or the practice of steadfastness, for example, given the current grave circumstances, just waking up every morning with the determination to carry on with one's daily routine, hold fast to one's humanity in spite of the challenges and dangers and movement, literally movement, walking through a checkpoint, through a border, going to school, going to work, going to, going to worship, um, is to practice sumud, practice steadfastness, is to struggle. Um, other authors, uh, Nijma Ali, a Palestinian woman, also writes about sumud in terms of the infra-politics of everyday resistance. Um, and the adaptability of that practice, depending on the context. And uh, another scholar that I appreciate, Sophie Richter Devereaux, um, in her conversation with Palestinian women, talk about Sumud um, in terms of staying on the land, staying here even though there are many problems, um, to not leave, um, to bear what is happening and to stay on our land. Uh, many Palestinians argue that simply carrying on a normal life, uh, saying yes to life, uh, affirming life despite uh, social or structural uh, expressions of violence, constitutes resistance. Uh, quoting Sophie, this redefinition of the infrapolitics of Samud includes acts of carrying on normal life under occupation that takes both material and ideational. Right? It's about things like hope, as well as things like working. And she, in Arabic, she actually plays with that. Amal, right, work, and amal, hope. Right? It's kind of like this other, another way to talk about it. Amal, amal and amal, yeah. Um, as another way to think about the material and the ideational aspects of sumud. And so for the remainder of my talk, I want to zoom in on three examples, or three cases, I'll try, um, of sumud and solidarity in the context, in the settler colonial context in Palestine. Um, we've already, we, we already started here. We were just in Nahalin a moment ago. Here again is Dahar, um, uh, Nassar. So as I mentioned in the opening, um, the Nassars, this, this Palestinian family, Christian family, um, who have a, a 400 dunam or 100 acre farm in the West Bethlehem area, under the threat of confiscation for decades. Dahar describes how his grandfather bought the land in 1916. Uh, who was in charge? Do you all know who was in, in charge of Palestine in 1916? Was it the Israelis? No. Was it the Jordanians? No. Was it the British? No. It was the Ottomans. So he has papers from the Ottomans, and from the British, and from the Jordanians. And yet, since 1991, he's been in Israeli courts fighting for his land to prove ownership. Um, in our visit to their farm this summer, uh, Dahar and uh, Amal told us about the paperwork that goes back over 100 years, all of these things, the challenges, in particular, how the lack of social services, remember again, this is area C, 
right? You have to have a permit to build anything. Um, no electricity, no running water. Uh, so they collect rainwater, they have cisterns, etc. cetera. Um, yet, they refuse to leave. Uh, Dahar describes to us how Israeli settlers and Israeli military makes life difficult. I won't move, he declares. I grew up in this land, this is my land. He gave one example of the military several years ago uh, destroying around uh, 1,500 trees on his farm. Why do you destroy the trees, he asks. Why the trees? He was the trees I planted. I take care of the trees like my children. Remember, they don't have running water, so there's lots of rainwater-fed systems that they have to sort of uh, uh, brilliantly create. They make life more difficult so that one day I will move, Dahar says. I won't move, he declares again. This is my farm. I grow on my land. He points out that if Palestinian farmers don't use the land, the Israeli military can more easily come in and take land. And this is why he says, every year I plant more trees and I will stay on my farm. Um, the Nassar family experiences violence from settlements as well, including the cutting down of trees. Um, he takes his complaints to the Israeli courts um, and it's exhausting and it's expensive. His identification with the land and the trees is strong. When they destroy the trees, you plant double, he says. And so this image on the left is an image of Dahar after, when he discovered, you can see the, the, the tractor marks, when he discovered these trees had been uh, plowed under. And then the image on the right I took uh, are, the, are the trees that he planted <laughs> in their place. When they destroy the trees, you plant double. Smooth as struggle. The Nassar family expresses this commitment um, in, their faith in, in, in terms of their faith and spirituality as well. And you can see this right away when you, when you enter their property. There's this rock in, in English and other languages, Arabic and even Hebrew. I think that's German. We refuse to be enemies. It's refusal. Since this is an area C under Israeli control, the Nassar family often feels isolated. But despite all these difficulties, no electricity, closed roads, uh, for the students who were with me in the summer, you remember going over that dirt mound just to get to this farm? There was a dirt mound that covered the road, so you couldn't even like drive there to go over it. Closed roads, checkpoints, their steadfastness is unrelenting. Dahar tells me again, I want to stay in my land, I want to continue the work of my farm, and then when some neighbors, uh, Palestinian neighbors who uh, consider leaving, he says, don't leave, <laughs> don't leave. This is your land. And then he tells me again, I wanna stay with my farm. This is my farm. And then he says, when you still plant olive trees, you still have hope that one day it will change. So Dahar and Amal's father, Bishara, by the way, Dahar's son's name is Bishara, and Bishara, Dahar's son, Bishara, is a CJP graduate, actually. Uh, so Dahar, I know his EMU very well. Um, believe that their faith community has an important role to play in building this future. Um, and again, their faith articulated in this kind of refusal. But with the outbreak of the Second Intifada in 2000, 
guided by that vision, the Nassar family decided to transform uh, pieces of their farm, their whole farm, um, into a place of, uh, of gathering, of building peace, of struggle. Um, they called it the Tent of Nations. And since then, they've hosted thousands of visitors over the last two decades, uh, Palestinians, Israelis, internationals, including many folks from EMU. And these are some of those folks this summer. They, they put us to work when we went there. It was wonderful. Um, you can see some EMU folks, some students here. And then again, that's a settlement in the background, an Israeli settlement in the background. Um, they organized local opportunities for children to come and just get their hands dirty, to get connected to the land. And they organized work camps or harvest visits for internationals to come to their farm uh, in the fall. Uh, we're in the fall almost right now. It's almost, um, it's almost olive season, right? So if you're looking to harvest some olives, I know some folks I can put you in touch with to go to Palestine and help. In the context of Israel's settler colonial project, these efforts at solidarity and refusal are, to quote Dahar, big sumud. A, a key takeaway from this case, this case of the Ten of Nations, um, is that resistance is happening. Struggle is happening. And it's happening through these sorts of acts of steadfastness and refusal, staying on the land. And in situations characterized by settler violence, giving attention to sumud and solidarity, a struggle reveals how something like cultivating farmland, herding sheep, picking olives, the act of staying on your land, refusing the forces of displacement and dispossession is a form of resistance. It's the sort of resistance that might not be spectacular or flashy, but that resists nonetheless and it's quiet, non-triumphalistic, non-dominating act of relating to the land. Um, I won't talk a lot about this, but another example. Here's um, my friend and colleague, uh, Almar Testel, Dr. Almar. He teaches at Berzeit University, and we spent time with him. And he also talked about some of the land-based work that he's doing. Um, here we are looking at, this is in Ramallah now, looking out. Um, teaching us about the incredible biodiversity of the Palestinian landscape um, and how cultivating that biodiversity is resistance. Second case. Um, another case is in the South Hebron Hills in the southern occupied West Bank. Um, these Palestinian communities have experienced settler violence and attempts to displace and dispossess. By embracing popular resistance, they've been able to remain on their land in the face of frequent house demolitions and eviction orders. Again, everyday acts of resistance, just not leaving. Popular struggle that takes the form of sumud. And with this sort of framework and understanding of struggle, I argue that we begin to hear and see a much larger and powerful landscape of resistance happening. Uh, this area in the South Hebron Hills is surrounded by a belt of illegal Israeli settlements, constantly experiences violence. Uh, this area in particular is near a place called Masafriyata. Maybe you've heard of Masafriyata. It's been in the news last year. Um, 
particularly exposed to risk right now. The Israeli civil administration prevents construction in most Palestinian villages in this area. Again, it's an area C. Masafar Yatta is home to about 4,000 people, most of whom live off of what they produce, uh, fruit trees, uh, uh, dairy, shepherds. In, 19, in the 1980s, Israel declared Masafar Yatta, this area of villages, a firing zone, a closed military zone. And this set the stage for eviction orders and house demolitions of the Palestinians living there. And last year, the Israeli high court ruled that the military could expel over 1,000 Palestinians from their homes to make way for a military training zone in this area. And so while house demolitions happen in, in the occupied territories, this will be one of the biggest examples of displacement since Israel began its military occupation in 1967. Uh, the UN condemned it. Uh, NGOs, human rights organizations like Amnesty condemned it um, uh, for its breach of international humanitarian and human rights law. And there are two things to keep in mind when we look at Masafariyata and the South Hebron Hills in terms of the resistance land, right? Settler colonial context. Settler colonialism is all about land, right? Land-based and it's community-based. Uh, the first point demonstrated by folks in Atawani, which is a village uh, near uh, the Masfariyata ring. Uh, while many youth move to urban centers for better working conditions, there's a new generation of Palestinian organizers that have decided to stay in their villages. And this is one example. This is Sami. Sammy Hraini, Sammy met with our group when we were there this summer. Sammy says, um, this is our land. We won't leave. And that's why in 2017, they created the Sumud Freedom Camp um, in Sarura village. And here's our group again, um, uh, near Atawani with the Israeli settlement Ma'on uh, in the background there. This, give you, this map gives you a sense. This is hard to read, but uh, that's the settlement I just referred to. Um, there's Tawani. Uh, there's Sarura. There's Tuba. This is the Masfariyata region in the southern West Bank. Samud Freedom Camp in the Sarura village, um, specifically because of the threat of house demolitions, and not just house demolitions, the, 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 the um, order to demolish the entire village. And so they set up a camp and refused to leave. And this led to the creation of an organization called Youth of Sumud, which Sami is a part of, a group committed to maintaining a presence in that village. And accompaniment is a big part of that struggle. It's a big part of what they do. Um, accompanying children on the way from Tuba to Atawani, where the only school is, and they have to go buy a settlement to go to school. And they're... Um, uh, vulnerable to attacks by Israeli settlers in that settlement. So they accompany those children, or accompanying shepherds, or accompanying uh, farmers when they're harvesting their olives, the sort of accompaniment. Um, the Sumud Freedom Camp is one example of the various forms that indigenous resistance takes. For example, it bears resemblances to the uh, Osheti Shakawin camp at Standing Rock Reservation during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, in that it's not simply a site of protest, but uh, a community of mutual support and aid. It's another example 
in areas subject to settler colonialism where the act of staying on one's land, smooth, is an act of resistance. Um, And actually, uh, my colleague Federica Stagni and I have a chapter in this upcoming book uh, where we highlight uh, youth of Samud in particular. So, shameless plug. Okay, final third case. Uh, wrap this up. Uh, the the, the Palestine-Mexico border. So the construction of walls, the militarization of borders, confiscation of land can be observed throughout histories of settler colonialism. Again, um, maybe even here in the US, you know, definitely here in the US. And yet as borders, barriers, and walls harden through new security practices, local struggles emerge that transgress those borders, expressing transnational solidarities with other communities transgressing borders. One example of this is along the Palestine-Mexico border, where we observe both the coordination between the US or Israel or global business and the hardening of border regimes globally and struggles against that border violence. So in the US, over 650 miles of the nearly 2,000 mile border between the US and Mexico are lined with steel, concrete barrier, supplemented with a system of cameras, sensors, drones, uh, towers, um, border patrol. The barrier is a material expression of the dominant U.S. discourse about security and is linked to things like how we talk about immigration or how we talk about threats. Um, begun in 2002, much of Israel's 430-mile wall is not built in that green line. We just learned about how one area where it wasn't built in the green line um, but, built, uh, but dips deep inside of the West Bank, expropriating more land, like in the Halim, creating this, this seam zone. There are significant overlaps between the spaces and practices marking the U.S.-Mexico border and Israel's wall in occupied Palestine. Uh, journalist Dan Cohen has reported that technologies used by Israeli firms in occupied Palestine are being used on the U.S.-Mexico border. Cohen writes how towers along the border have been erected by the Israeli weapons company Elbit Systems uh, through its Texas-based subsidiary, uh, who has 100-plus million dollar contracts with U.S. Department of Homeland Security, um, creating this integrated fixed tower system with drones that sort of patrol the South Arizona skies. Now this phrase, Palestine-Mexico border, is meant to capture what's going on with this kind of border cooperation wherever you are in the world because of the political economy of that border regime. Todd Miller, a journalist, calls the Palestine-Mexico border the ultimate U.S.-Israel hybrid, the fusion of U.S. academic and corporate know-how, and the synergy of private industries. Um, Research and development happens in the borderlands, on occupied territory, producing the crucial selling points of a technology that is, quote, battle-proven, right, combat-ready, with businesses marketing their decades experience, quote, securing the world's most challenging border. Right? That's the selling point. 
as one Israeli officer plainly described to an audience of, uh, of business folks uh, and border patrol officials from the US, quote, we've learned lots from Gaza. It's a great laboratory. This description of borderlands as a laboratory presents the people in those borderlands, whether Palestinian or Central American folks in the move, not only as a racialized threat in these discourses about security and immigration, but as objects, as specimens in this laboratory. And there's incredible creative resistance happening along these borders. Um, steadfastness, transnational solidarity. For example, in 2014, during Israel's assault on Gaza, the Arizona-based migrant justice and human humanitarian group uh, No More Deaths, No Mas Muertes, uh, released this statement condemning Israel's attack on civilians in Gaza. So this migrant justice organization in Arizona was saying something about something that was going on halfway around the world. Why? Because there was a socio-historical familiarity that was recognized. Another example, 2014, this protest in Los Angeles. Um, when uh, US President Obama was visiting the city, people took to the streets in LA to protest Israel's assault on Gaza, but the focus was children. Not only were protesters speaking up for the 400 Palestinian children who had been killed up at that point in Gaza, they were also protesting in relation to the rights of the 60,000 unaccompanied children who had arrived at the US southern border during the previous year. Um, quoting Todd Miller, the journalist Todd Miller again, quote, these Latin American youngsters have entered into the jaws of the largest border detention and deportation regime that we've ever experienced in the US. And then coupling that with what was going on in Gaza, he says, official disdain and violence against children or certain types of children had been on pure raw display across the globe. And the convergence of these two issues on the streets of LA took this lyrical form when the people marched, they started chanting, Emigrantes, Palestinos, estamos unidos. Immigrants, Palestinians, we are united. And their demands were not only that the US stop its $3 billion annual military aid to Israel, but also that it put a halt to this deportation machine. Um, and by the way, uh, another expression of this res creative resistance is music. And there's this wonderful Jordanian-Palestinian band called 47 Soul with a wonderful video called Border Control that basically just did a better job of telling you what I just told you. Um, another example of this, World Without Walls. In 2017, a delegation from the US-Mexico borderlands traveled to Palestine to build connections and solidarity, meet Palestinian workers who share similar struggles related to labor exploitation, dehumanization, and learn about the impacts of Elbit Systems technologies. Remember Elbit Systems technologies in Palestine, because they know what it was like in Sonora or Arizona, or on the Tohono O'odham Reservation, which actually crosses the border. Right? Do you know there's an indigenous and Native American reservation that the US-Mexico border goes right in the middle of? The Tohono O'odham. So members of the Tohono O'odham Nation went to Palestine. Uh, this delegation was part of the World Without Walls initiative launched by Stop the Wall, which is the Palestinian NGO. Um, and hundreds of movements across Palestine, Mexico, Latin America, around the world signed on to this call. 
to, uh, for a world without walls. This is just one image of folks who are part of that delegation in Palestine. Um, an important element of this solidarity is described by Soledad Ortiz, a Mexican activist with the Observatory of Human Rights. Um, she describes the goal as unifying and globalizing struggles against physical walls, wars, wars and resource extraction. Quoting uh, Soledad, quote, this joint struggle is critical for the survival of the people in our planet. While struggles must be grounded in a time and a place, right, at the site of oppression. Connecting with other struggles, looking beyond, she says, this is why we come together as people. It's fundamental to organize ourselves as people, to defend ourselves, unite at an international level, to globalize our struggles, because the technology of these regimes are global. Here's the wall. This is, I took this right outside of Bethlehem. And this is the wall uh, my friend Saulo also took on the US-Mexico border. And um, another example of how this transnational solidarity emerges, this is just a, um, a screenshot from a video called When I See Them, I See Us, which was an initiative, uh, a black Palestinian solidarity initiative. Struggle as sumud and solidarity signals a response, quoting Robbie Shilliam, a response that is never indebted to the imposition. Colonial impositions like the violence, nonviolence binary even, or asking questions like where's the Palestinian Gandhi, obscure these forms of struggle that may not fit those categories neatly. So in conclusion, um, I want to return to this, this, this category um, and basically uh, make the case that violence, nonviolence, typically in discourse, does not happen at, like a continuum. It's like this continuum. We want to analytically talk about it as a continuum. But when we talk about people, we, talk, we usually use it as a binary. And that binary has nothing to do with sort of the ontologically prior uh, elements of whether it's violence or nonviolence. I'm arguing that that binary works to authorize some things and deauthorize other things. To say this is legit, but this is not. And then we use the word violence or the, that part of the binary to deauthorize and then authorize by saying, stop violent. As a member of the Palestinian Land Defense Coalition described to me, their organizing strategies don't begin with a reflection of the principles or practicalities of nonviolence but our response to the particularities of people's lived experiences, their situations, their needs. I'm just gonna quote him at length here. Palestinian Land Defense Coalition based in Ramallah. He says, when we started from the beginning, we didn't think, is this gonna be violence or nonviolence? It's a response. It should be concerning the kind of situation here because it's affecting communities. It needs a popular reaction. And to keep the people involved strongly in this, um, it has to be nonviolent, but we don't call it nonviolence. Not because we are calling for violence, that wasn't in our minds, but because our struggle is our struggle, and we Palestinians will decide the kind of struggle we want to use. We know that this kind of resistance should be popular so that more people will participate. Our aim from the beginning was to create a wider movement 
We organized thousands of demonstrations and never ever did anybody shoot a bullet. Not because we placed restrictions, but people by themselves don't do that. Because the resistance in our society, that is a quote, the resistance in our society didn't just start yesterday. It's been years and decades of inheriting a different kind of struggle that we're practicing. Um, so, and here's a watermelon. Watermelon's delicious. We had a lot of watermelon in Palestine this summer. Um, what are the colors of the watermelon? Red, green, white, black, also the colors of the Palestinian flag. And as uh, uh, Bassan Arafat points out in her Instagram post, um, once upon a time it was a crime to carry the Palestinian, you can go to jail if you're Palestinian with a flag. And so, so what do you do instead? Look at this delicious watermelon, right? So refusal, steadfastness, these cases of Samud and solidarity, the Ten of Nations, youth of Samud, world without walls, highlight not only the potential problems of a binary, of a fixed, we're going to impose onto your landscape what proper struggle is, but uncovers a dynamic where when some forms of resistance are identified or authorized or deemed legitimate, other forms get deauthorized or deemed illegitimate. Not only in ways that obscure that struggle, but obscure the settler colonial violence that is happening. More importantly, these cases highlight responses, again, that are not indebted to the colonial imposition. It helps us recognize the persistence of colonial forms of power in world politics expressed in hierarchical binaries as it uncovers expressions of social organization and political subjectivity other than the state, sociality, social organization. Because in Palestine, resistance as Samud, solidarity reminds us that it may not be about a predetermined political economic telos per se, but about existence, about being, about land, and about our refusal of erasure and elimination. So I have a lot of folks to thank. Thank you all for being here. Thanks to my family. Thanks to the provost's office. Thanks to the Roseland Writing Collective that work with me on some of this text. Um, to our uh, intercultural students. And then back in, in Palestine, uh, my friends, the Testel family, Birzeit University that I was a visiting researcher with, the Siraj Center for Holy Land Studies, and I could not leave out F-Team, which has the greatest falafel and hummus in the world. <laughs> and if you're interested, October 9 is Indigenous Peoples Day. And November 29 is International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian People. Uh, stuff's happening. Get involved. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Seidel. That was amazing. And um, we want to now open up the space for those who have questions, um, just an opportunity for some question and answer. 
Rhonda will be walking around with the mic, and the reason is is that we need to be able to pick up the sound for our participants on Facebook Live so that they can actually hear. So I know you might have your hand up and we might look at you, but please wait until you receive the mic uh, before you ask your question. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this current slide. You've, you've actually hinted previously in your talk about the biodiversity in, in Palestine, and I see uh, if my mic's still working, there we go. I, I'd love to hear more about that, what this institute is, how it connects to the rest of the story and the farmland. Yeah, and so I'm a teacher, so my, my impulse is to ask one of the students in the room to respond to that question, who was there? Anybody remember this visit? What stood out to you about the biodiversity or the sustainability? This is a huge hit when we visited uh, Dr. Mazin. It, it was some brilliant stuff going on. Um, so another example of organizations where if you want to get back to Palestine, volunteer, learn, whatever, this is a great place to go. Um, so while, you're, while the students are thinking about that, um, <laughs> so I mentioned my friend Almar. So one of the things that he does is he's all about dry land agriculture, not agriculture, what's the word? Dry land perennials. Um, and a, as a source, as a sustainable source of food, right? Um, and he works with the Land Institute out in the Midwest here in the U.S. on stuff like that. Um, but uh, the, the biodiversity uh, piece um, is a recognition of, you know, as you all know, healthy systems are diverse systems, right? Whether you're a dry, uh, dry land perennial uh, 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 ecosystem in Palestine or an EMU learning community, right? Um, and so what Mazin does is he does some research on what, are, what does that diversity look like? How is it under threats? Um, and then what are some practices or technologies we can use uh, to challenge, to, to respond to the vulnerability, but also then challenge the, the settler colonial violence that is rendering vulnerable that biodiversity. Um, some of the things that we saw there, um, I mean, he had like a little farm almost set up there at the, at the museum itself, um, as well as some bees, um, as well as just different technologies for growing in, in the midst of the different kind of climates, that they, the climate shifts that they're experiencing as well. But Almar's work is really great. Almar works, his organization is called Makaniyat, which he teaches at Berzeit, but Makaniyat very specifically is about archiving. So he, he collects seeds uh, to, to, to archive and protect this biodiversity. So if you go to his little office, which is where I worked out of when I, uh, my, my sabbatical visit, I kind of just hung out in his office. Um, it's like one, two rooms, there's just like seeds everywhere, right? And within refrigerators and like all this kind of stuff. So that's some of the stuff that he's, some of the work he's doing. Yeah, thank you, Tim, um, for a stimulating presentation. Very well. Uh, so I have, um, uh, I really like the way you presented. So does, did you eat a lot of olives there? I'm sorry? There's did you eat a lot of olives? Olives. Olives, yes. Okay. You know, I did. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, it was very sim very kind of symbolic that way yeah. that how olive is a symbol of peace and, and, and hope and prosperity. Yeah. And, but and in the, you ended it with the slice of, of watermelon. Yeah. Uh, very, very interesting. So I, I just want to know that what is the, the is there any grassroots movement that, that is building up? Uh, or is there any Palestinian nationalism kind of feeling that you feel that? So how, what's the, the state of, of, of the social movements? Yeah, the state of the social movements, yeah. Well, the, so even just these three examples of three different, maybe we'll call them NGOs, or maybe we'll just call them community-based organizations, or maybe we'll call them movements of sorts, Tenth of Nations, Youth of Samud, um, Stop the Wall and the World Without Walls campaign. Um, <clears throat> there's lots of really incredible creative movement work like that, and a lot of organizers trying to facilitate movement work like that. The context, I, I spoke mostly to the settler colonial context that challenges that kind of organizing, right? If you, the area C map, right? If you can't move, like physically, if you can't go, it's hard to connect. It's hard to organize outside of your local place. But another aspect that has made it really challenging is um, what, what some folks call the NGOization of Palestinian civil society. So an NGO, non-governmental organization, NGOization, sort of the... Uh, after the Oslo Accords were signed, lots of money went into Palestine to create civil society initiatives. Sounds like a really good idea, right? But one of the effects of that is it undermined some of the informal networks of relationships. Um, the, first, this, the, the difference between the first Intifada in the late 80s and the second Intifada in the early aughts, one of the big differences is how participation happened. In the late 80s, before that NGOization happened, Palestinian society looked very different. There weren't international organizations all over the place like there are today. And that has an impact on social movements in Palestine. Um, the question about nationalism and sort of the national movement is very complicated um, because, again, of the Oslo process. But it looks different, right? Pride in a watermelon, right? Pride in a flag, here we are at EMU, right? Means something very different when you don't actually have a state. So it's, yeah, that's, that's a complicated question that what is a national movement? What are national goals when uh, not only are you constant assault by a settler colonial regime, but this, the sort of nation state that was supposed to happen after five years never happened but still is existing, i.e. the Palestinian Authority, um, is one of the problems to achieving that national dream. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Thank you, Gaurav. Thanks for the presentation. Uh, it just come to mind when you talked about the type of colonization which the 
Israelis is trying to do in Palestine. And the two models we have, uh, Algeria, which was really brutal, and they right, tried to change the language and the culture and mm -hmm. so forth. And it was a violent type of uh, rebellions until the... And the second one, of course, South Africa, which really went a little bit more, a combination of violence and peaceful type of mm. non-violence mm. uh, model. And of course, there is a third one, which uh, unfortunately it's worse than when Rhodesia, mm. which we have, it was the, the British at this time and some of their uh, uh, British settlers there tried to make Rhodesia basically uh, an English uh, uh, culture. And I wonder how this, you look at Palestine now. They have, at certain time, was going through uh, some of the uh, armed struggle. And then, as you said, went to the Oslo, which was basically nonviolent, and and now we don't see result. So is the next stage how you you see what will happen? And now we are reaching uh, since 1947. Now we're about 70 years. Right. Uh, South Africa remained about. Algeria more than a hundred years, yeah. but it failed. South Af Africa, the same thing. What I'm just thinking, what's the, based on what's going on now in Palestine, which route it will take uh, to settle the issue between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Ravi, um, for reminding us these <laughs> different sort of models of settler colonialism historically, the French in Algeria, right, or the British in Rhodesia, um, apartheid in South Africa, um, and where, where it's going in Palestine. Um, so I don't have an answer, but what I'll say Something that, we, something that really stood out to me in these six weeks that we lived in Palestine this summer was hearing from Palestinian folks who, finding these correlations historically can be really helpful to understand how politics and economics works globally, right? But it can be super constraining too because, oh, it has to be, this has to be the, the path or that has to be the results. And again, there's an imposition that happens sometimes. And one of the things that stood out to me in this trip uh, these six weeks was hearing, especially from Palestine, younger Palestinian folks who were just moving from a different place altogether, right? They weren't moving from a place of like, we need to somehow you know, challenge Christian Zionism because all the Western Christians think about Palestine incorrectly. Or we need to somehow change the narrative here because um, in Europe, uh, the, uh, the discourse is just wrong and, you know, disadvantages Palestinians, right? All those things are really important things to do. 
But they said that for us, and it took this, this sort of indigenous sort of groundedness, said, we're going to move from a place about what is my experience right now, what kind of creativity and wisdom is going on in my community right now, um, and move from that. Again, not indebted to the imposition of a Western Christian framework or uh, a European political framework, but um, uh, we, we met with a young Palestinian Christian man who was talking about indigenous religion in Palestine. We met with another, another Palestinian fellow who is, who is Christian and super critical of the church um, because of its um, complicity with America, Israel, etc. Uh, we met with a Palestinian woman who uh, did SPI here once. She worked for an NGO in Bethlehem, did SPI here one summer, and now her, her livelihood is um, uh, embodied practices like yoga. And how that, I just, my, my takeaway was um, they're not responding to me, to us, to anything else. They are, they are in their place. They're in their, they are connected in their place. And that's where they're moving from. And in a way, that was really inspirational. That was really ho hopeful for me. Um, because like Fanon once wrote in Wretch of the Earth, if you want to reproduce Europe, then let Europeans do it. Right? He says, no. Uh, we need something new. And he called for that kind of creativity. And I really saw that. I don't know about you all. I really saw that in this last trip to Palestine, which then leads me, so I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think part of the challenge is, is, is paying attention uh, to the surprises. I think this is part of this methodology that I'm trying to, to argue here that, um, or as Gayatri Spivak said, listening for the silences, right? Just because you don't hear it doesn't mean it's not happening. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, Totally unsatisfactory response to your question, Dr. Ravi. But I, I think this, this is what stood out to me in our trip uh, this summer. One more question. Yeah, we'll take one more. Tim, this is great. Um, I don't know hardly anything about Palestine just because it's so complicated and I venture. I don't want to, but I, I lived a lot of my life in Southeast Asia. But I'm just, I'm just as you were talking, um, you probably know of this person, and if you don't, he needs to know of you, you need to know of him. But I don't know if you're familiar with James Scott of Yale. Yeah, sure. I mean, Everyday yeah. Forms of Peasant Bristus yeah. is just, just is written all over the place right. with this and yeah. domination in the arts of resistance and hidden transcripts and yeah. and this idea of not um, playing the public game and then not hiding the transcript but the whole idea of the politics of disguise and anonymity right. that takes place in public view but is designed to have a double meaning to shield the identity of the actors and that's the watermelon. Right. So right. I, I just think um, and I'm just wondering um, by definition, outsiders have, if they're successful, have a difficult time finding the hidden transcript and have to be really good readers to see the double meaning thing. Just commenting on that. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, James Scott's were weapons of the week. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and when, and when you know, Nijma 
talks about the infrapolitics. I mean, that's, she's in conversation with, with James Scott in that regard, for, for sure. Yeah. Uh, this, this photo is from F-Team, so I had to close with that photo. From F-Team, um, right down the corner on Manger Square, right down uh, from Manger Square. Um, you'll see pictures of my son Kai up on their bulletin board because he was born, Kai was born in Bethlehem, and so they had all the, there's this bulletin board with all these dignitaries, like I think um, uh, uh, you know, British parliamentarians or whomever, and then there's Kai. <laughs> so if you, get to, if you get to Palestine, go to Bethlehem. If you go to Bethlehem, go to F-Teams. That's a great way to end, yeah. wonderful. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but food always makes me smile. Um, <laughs> So with that, let's just give Tim just one more round of applause for the great work. His willingness to share his knowledge, learning, and even probably some of the areas you're still grappling with, um, as well as the students that joined him um, on the intercultural trip to Palestine this summer. I can only imagine how transformational that was for our students and for you to walk alongside them uh, intimately in that way. Um, and so with that, that concludes our, with this, it concludes our time together in this space. Um, please join us for just some light refreshments, uh, opportunity to gather and talk with one another. Uh, and I'm going to look to Rhonda as to where we are, are going, just right up the steps there. Thank you all. Have a great evening.